There are two readings this morning. The first one is from Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 to 9. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went down, went out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. We turn to 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. This is God's word. Uh, let me add my welcome if we've not met. My name's Matt, uh, Matt Fuller. Uh, I'm one of the ministers here. It'd be uh, lovely to meet you afterwards. But you join us. We've been spending quite a lot of time in this uh, chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. For church regulars, this is our last week of several uh, here. You may be delighted, relieved, or sad to know. But uh, let's pray together. Our Father, your word declares that God is love. 
And we pray that once again as we turn to uh, this chapter in the Bible, we'd see more of what it means for you to be the one who loves. We would see ourselves in contrast to that as those who often fail to love as we should. Uh, And so we pray you'd move us both to faith in you and to love for others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I guess you could, you could approach a question this way for uh, Hetty Gill. What do Al and Virginia desire for her? What would get them excited about her as she grows up? What do they long for her in terms of that she's affluent, that she's got a successful career, that she marries a man like Daddy? Perhaps more prosaically, they will long that she skis like her father, bakes like her mother, not the other way around. What would it be? What would be the desire? Well, 1 Corinthians 13 would say a great desire, or in fact, the, the primary, perhaps, desire would be that she's a Christian who loves other people. It matters more than anything. This is a letter, 15 chapters, written to a church in Corinth, and they got it wrong. And one says this, what we've just had read again, would ask us, what gets us excited? If you're part of a church, if you're part of this church family, what gets you excited about church? What do you care about? What matters? Is it the stuff that goes on up front? You're particularly excited by, oh, you know, the music, or why is that not there? That's got not, not so good today, or whatever it is. The, the preaching, the facilities, the resources, is that what gets you excited? And this would say, what you want to care about in a church is, do you love one another? And the rest is decoration in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul is writing this uh, letter, 15 chapters, to an incredibly able, talented bunch of people. It's a successful church in a successful city. They've got plenty of resources, uh, and financially they're going well. They're particularly gifted spiritually in church gifts. Uh, but they've made the mistake of confusing being gifted with being mature. Uh, particularly these three chapters, 12, 13, 14. Uh, his point is that you, you've got all sorts of abilities and talents and gifts, but you use them for yourself, whereas you should use them for others. You don't want the spotlight on you. You want it on others, is how you should be living, how you should be using uh, your gifts. All gifts are to be used from love in order to love. But it doesn't always work that way. It doesn't always work that way in churches, sadly. I caught up just a couple of weeks ago uh, with a friend. He pastors a large church in London, several hundred uh, uh, there uh, at most services. Uh, but he lamented to me. He said, you know, sometimes I look out and think a good slogan for our church would be a successful church for successful people. That would be a good slogan because we do everything well. I mean, the, the, the teaching is great and the music is great and we have a suite of buildings, which is super. Uh, we, have all, we have, you know, millions given every year. It's great. But I sometimes look out and think we're a successful church for successful people. And what I love more than all we've got is to see self-sacrificial love. 
obviously, empirically, visibly demonstrated. I'd give up lots to see more of that. In this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13 would remind us we should delight in that more than gifts, more than finances, more than growth in number. Love, sacrificial, costly love for others. Um, if you've been with us then for a few weeks, we've spent a few weeks, we slowed right, right, right down in the, the letter of 1 Corinthians in chapter 13, and this chapter goes a bit like this, verses 1 to 3, love is necessary, uh, 4 to 8, love is applied into the situation uh, of uh, the church in Corinth. Um, golly, we've picked up the pace enormously today, we're going to do goodness knows how many verses, 8 to 13, uh, and say love never fails, it's the permanence of love that is emphasized here, everything else goes this remains. So look, we look at that this briefly. All gifts will end. So stop thinking like children. Oh, and look, in conclusion, love is the greatest thing of all. Let me work through it then. First, verses 8 to 10, all gifts will end. Uh, Paul writes this, love, uh, verse 8, love never fails. Whether there are prophecies, they will cease. Whether there are tongues, they will be stilled. Whether there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When completeness comes, that is when Jesus returns, all gifts will go. So he focuses here on three particular gifts that were causing uh, resentment, pride, envy in the church at Corinth, that of prophecy and, and tongues and division. You could use it for any gift. Most things end. You could be in this life brilliant at earning money, which is useful for now, but it ends. You could be the most wonderful doctor, skilled at healing all sorts of people, but it ends. That is no use when Jesus returns and remakes this world. Oh, so things are useful for now, but they do End. Prof- I mean, he talks about the three that were causing a stink in the church that back then. Prophecies. Well, that's useful, telling forth the future or, or applying scripture into to life situations today. But when Jesus returns and we're in eternity, you won't need that. It's a fat lot of good. You can light a candle in the bright sunshine, the bright sunshine of July. You could light it, but it's a, it does you no good. You don't need it. Similarly, tongues, angelic languages, whatever you think they are, they cease. They are not a necessary sign of intimacy with the Lord. They cease. Claims of knowledge, who cares, will know all things. You've got a gift of healing. My job is to teach the Bible. Well, I'm redundant. No need for me. Then. And you can see why in verse, his explanation comes in verses 9 and 10. We know in part, we prophesy in part, when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. There's a sense in which all gifts that are useful for building up a church, they're a bit like signposts directing you. But when you arrive, you don't need them. So if you are traveling, if you you booked yourself into, for a few days, a hotel in St. Ives in Cornwall. Uh, the, the signage is quite useful. We do signage well in the UK, generally. The, um, you know, and you think, okay, but the southwest, great, I'll head there, and then 
whatever it is, Tamar Brit, great, and A30, great, and St. Ives, great, and you, the signs are useful and they get you there. But when you arrive in your hotel room and you're let in, at that point, if someone hands you a big metal sign which says St. Ives, three miles, or you are in St. Ives, great, what do you want me to do with this? Well, it's a sign, but I don't need it now. I'm here. And all gifts are just like that. And church gifts, spiritual gifts, we need them now. The, the church can't function without gifts of service and giving and teaching and knowledge. You can't function without different people bringing their gifts to a church. But in the future, so don't get too excited about what you can and can't do. Gifts are just a signpost. Love is not a signpost. Love is our destiny. Heaven is a place of love. And you can model that here and now, he says. So look, all gifts will end. So stop thinking like children, verses 11 and 12. Now look, forgive me for, I've turned a personal statement of Paul into a command. I think that's the implication. Let me read verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Now, there's a clear contrast there, child, adult. Quick question, uh, does he mean there, is that A, a contrast between this world and eternity, child, mature, or is it a contrast between how you behave? You can be childish here and now in how you use the gifts and abilities you've got, or you can be mature. We take, I think it's the latter, I wouldn't fall out with you over it. I think it's the latter. I'm swayed by Paul's verbs, the tense. I became, I put behind me, past tense. Uh, for those who are here regularly, look, I, I care, I'm swayed by chapter 14 and verse 20. It's still the same issue in chapter 14 about how people are using their spiritual gifts. In chapter 14, verse 20, Paul will say, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants. In your thinking, be adults. I think it's the same here in chapter 13. The language is very similar to chapter 13, verse 11. I think he's saying, for myself, there was a time when I I thought of of giftedness in a very immature way. I looked at myself and thought, I'm very gifted, you know. I am more intelligent than most people in the room. This is him speaking. I am more intelligent than most people in the room. Look at me, I'm very impressive. And that was childish. And now, as a grown-up, spiritually, Paul says, whatever gifts I may have, I know I've been given them to serve other people. That's maturity. What I have, I've been given to serve. I think that's what he's saying. So here is a rebuke to the Corinthian church. So impressed with what they can do. So impressed with their gifts and their maturity. And he says, you're very childish, you know. Very childish. Now, that is not particularly hard to understand, I think, the contrast between childish behavior and adult. Children are naturally self-centered. Well, adults are too, but you just get a little better at hiding it. And so the family say, or a dad says, oh, look, this afternoon we're going to visit Florence in hospital. And the six-year-old says, oh, I don't want to do that, that's boring. And mum and dad say, Well, yeah, it is a bit, but we're not doing it for us. 
It isn't an outing for us, it's for them. Oh, can't I stay at home, says the six-year-old. No, we're going to love them. That's childish thinking. And you can kind of accept it from a six-year-old. If a 40-year-old comes out with that, you're less accepting of it. A, um, or two children, uh, they're at home, and uh, uh, one says, hey, look, stop it. I want to play the piano. Everyone listen to me play the piano. I- I'm much better than Johnny is at playing the piano. Yes, well done. He's five, you're 15. Well done. You are better at the piano than him. But how about encouragement? Now, again, you'd kind of expect that somewhat in a child. In an adult, uh, it's just odd. Paul is saying, stop showing off about what you can do. Don't say, well, I want to do what I want to do. It's all about me. Look at me, everyone. Look at me. What about me? What about my turn? Don't be childish. Whatever gifts you've got, use them to serve others. It's not all about you. Grow up. Or uh, in our family, I don't know if others, we, um, we quite enjoy the game of life. Uh, it's slightly naff in one sense, but it's a classic family game, and it's done within sort of 45 minutes to an hour, so it doesn't have the sort of extended life of Monopoly or quite the same level of argumentation. But um, game of life, you know the game of life? Has, it's quite simple. You sort of, uh, well, certainly the version we've got is a slightly sort of middle-class version, so you, everyone goes to university. And um, uh, at the end, I don't know why, but at the end of it, uh, you pick a card. What job am I going to get? And some are great, and you get a job where you get your starting salary is £100,000 a year and some... £20,000 a year, it's a bit of the luck of the draw in that game, and then you go round the board, and you land on various squares, and you land on this square, and oh, you're married, and you land on this square, oh, you've got a dog, okay, and you land on this square, oh, you've got a child, and you go round, and you get points for however much money you've got, and points for stuffing your car with as many animals creatures, children, as you can possibly fit into the car. You, you get points for going around different continents. On a, you can go skiing, you get points, and uh, you know, um, safari, you get points. You get points for all these different things. It's sort of vaguely enjoyable, it, slightly materialistic way of looking at life. Um, more subtly capitalist than Monopoly, but... Um, teaches your children odd things. Now look, sometimes, just being realistic, sometimes you play this game and from the word go, someone gets everything. They get the jet pilot, I think that's the best paid job on the, in the game and they're earning £300,000 uh, you know, uh, and their car gets stuffed full of animals and, and other children um, uh, from the word go. And you know, within about 10 minutes, it's pretty obvious that whoever it is, Peter's going to win the game. Now, If you're an adult and you sulk at that point, that's pretty pathetic. If you're, I'm not playing anymore. It's obvious Peter's going to win. Now, if you're an adult and do that, you're sad. You are. You're tragic. If a child does that age six, you kind of jolly them along. You know that it's a bit harder work. But if an adult you do that, it's misery, it's pathetic because you should realize that at the end of an hour, it all goes back in the box and nothing lasts. All that really matters is how you play the game. And to push that, Paul is really saying, you do realize that this this world ends. And we play the game of life for 70 years. And some are wildly successful from the word go, and they've got it all. And it kind of is a bit annoying. But who cares? 
It all goes back in the box. If I was being brutal, I'd say, you go back in your box. That's it. Okay, it's, it's 70 years, a bit longer than an hour, but the game ends. And what matters? How much you've earned? How many continents you've visited? How many dogs you've squeezed into the boot of your car? Meaningless when the game of life ends. All that matters is how you've lived that game. And so Paul is saying here, look, what matters during this life is how you live it. That you place your faith in Jesus Christ, and secondly, that you love other people. That is what matters. The rest all fades. You could be wonderfully gifted, but it doesn't matter. So implication, will you stop thinking like children? Will you stop boasting about how much you can do and how much you've achieved in this life or sulking because others have got much more than you? Will you it's just childish. For goodness sake, grow up, is his point. Stop acting like children. Or he pushes it further, uh, uh, verse 12. For now what we see, it's only a reflection, as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. Now, Corinth was well known historically for at this time for its production of mirrors, but they're not glass and foil like we produce mirrors, which are pretty good reflections, bronze mirrors. And even if you can burnish or polish bronze as hard as you like, it's still a little bit wibbly, the reflection you get back in it, and that's the contrast he's drawing. But he also seems to be drawing on the contrast from Numbers chapter 12, where we had, which we had read. And again, the issue back in that Old Testament reading is very similar. You've got a couple, Aaron and Miriam, complaining. Why does Moses get all the good stuff? Why does Moses get all the attention? We're gifted, you know. Why doesn't someone give us a go? Why can't we be in the spotlight? Very similar issue to the issue in Corinth. But there God says to them, yeah, very good, you got gifts and you prophesy. Do you know about Moses? He sees me face to face. Literally the case, but an idiom for intimacy. And all the way back there in the Old Testament, God is still saying, look, your gifts are neither here nor there. How you relate to me, how you know me, oh, that matters enormously. God says, yeah, there are prophets, but Moses is different. He sees me face to face. And Paul here is saying, again, yes, in this life, some people have more and some people are more gifted, but what we have now, it's just a, a poor reflection. Then, in the future, when Jesus returns, we shall see him face to face. Now, there is just something wonderfully intimate about looking at someone in the face, It is, but we don't do it very often, but you could have a little experiment on your way home or tomorrow on the tube. If you're sat opposite someone on the tube and you just very deliberately look at them <laughs> in the face, look, one of a few things will happen quite soon. They will, if they notice, they'll turn away. They will erect their newspaper barrier quite high. If they're a bit more forthright, they might say, Perhaps politely, do you mind? Or less politely, what are you looking at? 
um, or words to that effect. Because you, it is odd just to stare someone in the face. The only person we really do it to is perhaps a spouse. And even then, if you just stare at your spouse in the face, after a while they'll say, stop it. Why are you being so odd? What have I got on my nose? Is my hair okay? They'll, they'll think something's wrong. You could just, 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 you know, just five seconds, just turn to the person next to you, stare at them in the face. Go on, just do it. Just do it for five seconds. Just do it. So, you just, you know, we can do it. You'll you, you give up. You'll give up after about two seconds. It's just weird. There is intimacy. It's, a, it's an idiom. It's a metaphor for intimacy. And Paul says you, you will be able to stare the living God face to face and not shrink and not be embarrassed. There's real confidence, intimacy, acceptance when you do that. Or to put it in another way, he says, verse 12, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. Wow. I'll know, as, I'll know God fully, even as he knows me now. You could perhaps ask a question. You could say, Al, how well, how much does the Lord know about you? Well, he knows everything. There are no secrets. If an angel were to ask the Lord, how well do you know Virginia Gill? Well, I know everything. I've known her before she was created. I know every thought, every dream when she sleeps. She can't remember them. I know them all. I've not forgotten one. He knows everything. And there's that degree of knowledge of the Lord then. See, Paul is saying, there are many good things about this life, and many gifts in this life, and many opportunities in this life, but compared to then, it's just in part, it's just a, a bad reflection compared to then. That's where we're going, so stop thinking like children. Heaven is a world of love, and you can practice for that world now. Matters more than anything else. Love one another. Look, all gifts will end. Stop thinking like children, because love is the greatest virtue of all. Briefly then, verse 13, here's where he concludes. Now then, summing up. Now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now, why does he introduce faith and hope? The whole chapter's been about love. It's unclear. Probably because this trio of virtues, faith, hope, love, sums up, or, or these are the, the vital essentials of a Christian living. But of them all, love is the greatest. Why? He doesn't say explicitly. Not that love lasts and the others disappear. I don't think that's the case. Even if you, in heaven, we will still have faith in the Lord. It's just trust him. We still hope in what happens next, I think. Love will look different in the next world composed to this one. We will love one another perfectly in the next world. No more jealousy. No more envy. It is someone who now you look at and think, I quite like you, but you're so gifted. It just, I feel insecure next to you. No, you'd just be out of delight. 
than what everyone else can do. They'll all look a bit different. Now, why is love, so they all, all will go into eternity, but why then is love the greatest? He's not explicit here. But I think in the Bible you'd have to say, because it is central to the character of God. John would write 1 John 4, God is love. We're never told God is hope, God is faith, but he is love. He is the source of love. He is the fountain from which love flows out into this world. It flows from him. It's essential to who he is. And so Paul is saying, when you love in this sort of appropriate way, a 1 Corinthians 13 way, when you're patient and kind and don't envy and you don't boast, but you, you, you delight in the, in, in the truth, you always protect, you always trust. When you love like this, you are very, very close to the character of God. You're imitating him. That's why it matters. That's why it's the greatest Love is a concern for others. Even faith and hope we benefit from. We benefit from our faith. We benefit from our hope. Love is a giving attribute. It's a giving virtue. It's concern with others. That's very much like the Lord. Hetty would have been given this morning the little Bible. Same as uh, every child who gets baptized here. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible. We figure she's a bit young for reading in Greek. And um, so uh, it's, a, it's a lovely children's version, the Jesus Storybook Bible. It just makes the point repeatedly. The whole Bible is really about Jesus. All the stories in the Old Testament point to him. It's very good. It's translated into 34 different languages now. It's an excellent children's Bible. But it has this little refrain, which is lovely. The refrain that goes through the book is... God loves his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. It is a beautiful phrase. God loves his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And that lasts. And it's wonderful. And Paul says, love one another with that sort of love matters more than anything. Well, let me, uh, as I finish, put it this way. Do you remember, did you see or or, or remember the film uh, a few years ago, Angelina Jolie, uh, Changeling, did you see that one? The true story, based on a true story. Uh, She then, as a mother, has her young son taken away or or kidnapped. And uh, the police bring back her son uh, a few weeks later. And she says, actually, that's not him. That's not my boy. And the police in 1920s Chicago say, yeah, it is. We don't make mistakes. It's your boy. No, it's not my son. And so she campaigns. This is a mistake here. This is, this is not the child I bore. This is not my boy. But the police are unwilling to admit any mistake. And so they pursue her to the point where she's declared insane for rejecting her own son. And she's placed in an asylum. Do you see this film? You know the story? She's placed in an asylum, and she's locked up, and she's brutalized violently by the guards, and she undergoes incredibly primitive form of ECT, you know, electronic shocks to the brain, which leave her just as a zombie. 
And they keep saying, just say that that boy is yours and you can walk away. But she does not. And eventually she emerges. And eventually the truth emerges. After years of brutal treatment, which she could easily have avoided just by signing. Okay. Why does she do that? Because she loved her child. And she would endure almost anything because she loved her child and wanted to be with him. And you see in that just a small echo of the love of God for his people. When Jesus Christ came and walked this planet, he suffered horrific abuse at the hands of those he'd made. Torture, death upon a cross. And he did so. Why did he do so? Because he loves his people. And the only way for you and me to be restored to relationship with God is by allowing Jesus to pay for all we've done wrong. All our selfishness. That is love. A love that will endure pain, torture, to the point of death and beyond. That is love. That's a love that God has. Never giving up. Never stopping. Unbreaking. Always and forever love. Demonstrated in dying for us in Jesus Christ. You trust in that, you'll go to be with him. If you know that love, love others. All your gifts will go. All you've accumulated, all you've achieved will go. But love, love never fails. Love one another like that, he says. Let me lead us in prayer. Love never fails. Father, when we read this chapter and we read that love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it does not boast, we can't say that's true of us. We know impatience. We know selfishness instead of kindness. We know envy. And so, Father, we fall way, way short of your definition of love. But we thank you that Jesus did not. Thank you that he demonstrated this love in our place. We pray there would be those who trust in him and show this sort of love to others. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.